Good morning. There's not a place I'd rather be on this side of eternity than right here with all of you. Isn't it good to be together? I can't remember the exact year that it was. It was either my sophomore or my junior year of college. I think it was probably my junior year. But what I do remember is that one of the requirements for my degree was that I take a course called Linear Algebra. Now, um, I had always kind of been a, a math guy, and so math was just something, you know, we all have our different talents. Well, math was one of mine. I was pretty good at math, and, uh, and I enjoyed it. I had always really understood math well, and so I was pretty excited to have this class on my schedule that I knew was going to be pretty easy, because I had taken algebra when I was like a sophomore in high school, and so, you know, basically repeating an advanced form of algebra couldn't be bad at all. Now, did, y- did I y'all lose me? Y'all lost me. Oh, I'm back. Okay. Whew. I was going to have to talk really loud. So, so here I am, signed up for this linear algebra course, and I'm, I'm telling y'all, I had uh, kind of chalked this up to a pretty easy semester, and never in my life have I worked so hard for a C. I didn't understand a lick of what that guy was teaching me, and I, and I think some of it was that I started with a little bit of arrogance, and so I didn't work very hard at the beginning. And then I got behind, and it was like I was drowning, and it was all that I could do to, to memorize enough facts to get through the next quiz and get through the next test, and I just barely, barely squeezed by. Some of you may have had that experience. Um, maybe it was with math. Maybe it was a different subject where you just really never felt like you got your mind wrapped around what was happening. And maybe you passed the course, maybe you got enough details memorized to, to pass the quiz, but, but you really didn't understand. I mean, to this day, I couldn't tell you what linear algebra was about. Sorry to all you math people out there. I, I look uh, similarly, I, I see people, uh, maybe this will resonate with some of you, who can solve a Rubik's Cube. Have you ever seen someone who can do that? And it's just amazing. It's like they pick up the Rubik's Cube and they spin it around a little bit and then... Uh, and then all of a sudden, they start flicking their fingers around. And before you know it, here's this Rubik's Cube that's solved. And, and I've looked at the instructions, and there's certainly certain patterns you can memorize. I've even seen people who have those patterns memorized. And they pick up the Rubik's Cube, and, and they go through the algorithms. And one at a time, if they repeat this pattern over and over enough, they'll get one side, and then another side, and then another side. But the people who are, who are really masters at solving Rubik's Cubes, they haven't just memorized patterns. They understand how the, how the colors move around. They, they understand what they're doing as they're, as, they're, as they're making the moves. Here we are in our last week of studying the statement made by a lawyer to Jesus, uh, confirmed by Jesus as being true about the importance of loving God. We've looked at heart, soul, strength, and today we're going to look at loving him with all of our mind. I want to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 10 and read it together. Luke 10, 25 through 28. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Of all of these last four elements, the first four elements that we've studied, the mind is the one that for me resonates the most. 
After all, God gave us this powerful thinker between our ears, and we're called to use it in a, in a powerful way that brings glory to Him. And so I have spent a majority of my life working hard to understand the things of God, to rightly divide His Word, to have right and true and correct theology. I wonder if I've spent too much of my life placing my hope in right theology. Loving God with my mind has seemed most important because I, I think, I mean, we all know our, our faith isn't first built on feelings. It's built on the book, chapter, and verse that supports everything I do. I can have confidence because I have a book that teaches me what is right. And so if I can memorize the right moves... And if I can learn the right combinations, then maybe I will have achieved something valuable. I mean, we all know, and, and I know, uh, understand that salvation isn't earned. I mean, I read it in the book. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. I know that's true, and it's a good thing that I have that figured out right, because I think my salvation depends on it. It's a little cringy when we say it that way. If your mind is wrong on a central issue, we often feel like we're sunk. It's as if we have assigned top priority to right thinking, and it's followed closely by right living. I think we, specifically in this faith tradition, as the churches of Christ have been inclined to lean this way, so we have our hermeneutic that we call CINI, command, example, and necessary inference. And that's the lens through which we read Scripture. And so as we walk through Scripture, we're always looking for a set of rules. What's the command? What's the example? What do we have to infer here so that we know the right thing to believe and the right thing to do? Most of us have grown up um, with a high value on having a book, chapter, and verse for everything we do and everything we say and everything that we believe. We've developed a, a, a system of thinking about salvation that mirrors the five fingers on our hands. So we have the five steps of salvation, and it's been a great tool for helping us um, remember the different uh, things that we should go through. But at the end of the day, I step back and I look at all of this and I wonder, <clears throat> have we landed with a little bit of a dogmatic approach to salvation? Have we landed with a little bit of a dogmatic approach to Scripture? <clears throat> what follows from so much of this, uh, so much of this uh, grasping is that we proclaim to have the handle on truth, and we assign those who might think differently as us than us as heretics who hate truth. Now, few of us would say it out loud quite like that, though it wasn't very many years ago that we were very comfortable speaking these thoughts out loud. But deep down inside, even though we may not be saying them, I think a lot of us still believe these things. And even if we aren't so bold as to bind our scruples on others, we find a huge personal responsibility to leverage the power of our mind toward right thinking because we believe that is what God expects of us. That is the mark of biblical maturity, is understanding things rightly, is knowing the truth. Now, these things are not bad, but each of them has pressed us toward an intellectually centered faith. So I don't want you to hear something that I'm not saying. I believe blind faith is an oxymoron. Faith is always evidence-based. We are meant to use our mind as we develop our faith. 
I believe our intellectual faculties play an important role in the decisions that we make pertaining to how we worship. I believe that we must read the Bible and think about the things that it says in order to function, to to stand for truth, to make decisions on a daily basis. I believe all of those things. Don't hear me as brushing them aside as if they're not important. But here's the question that I want to ask this morning. I want to ask when we think about loving God with all of our minds, where have we placed our hope? Where have we placed our hope? 1 Peter 1.13 says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This word for mind is the same word that we find in our key text, and he's talking about how we prepare it, how we get it ready to go, how we get it ready for action. And the way that we do that is attached to where we set our hope. And I wonder if we have placed our hope in our ability to understand I wonder if we've placed our hope in our ability to think right and to be right. And I have to ask myself, is this the end goal of the pursuits of the mind? Is this what it means to love God with all of our heart and with all of our mind? Or could it be that those are the details, but the real lesson The real thing that we need to wrap our minds around to have understanding, the real knowledge that our mind is seeking after sets a little deeper. You see, I think we're often guilty of loving right answers with all of our mind and forgetting to love God with all of our mind. And it's a little bit ironic because that's exactly what the lawyer in this text just did. I want to spend a little bit of time in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 8 through 12. We opened our worship service with this passage. At first glance, it doesn't really seem like it says much with the problem at hand, but I think there's a lot here, and we need to unpack it just a little bit together. So let's read verses 8 through 12 again, and then let's talk about it. It says, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So as we step into this passage, we see it's set in the book of Hebrews. And the book of Hebrews is, is really about explaining to these new Christians this idea of the new covenant and Jesus' role within it. And this passage specifically is contrasting the old covenant with the new covenant. So the Old Testament way of doing things versus the New Testament way of doing things. And we see that it begins by pointing out that they had failed, not God, but they The Old Testament Israelite people had failed with the Old Covenant. We read that in verse 9. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. But then he goes on to to talk about the new covenant that was made that looks different. He says, 
His laws are in their minds and His laws are on their hearts and He is their God and they are His people. And and knowledge from the least to the greatest under this new covenant has become universal. Now that in and of itself was a big shift because He was basically saying, everyone gets to know me. And that was, a, that was a different thing under this new covenant. But if we stopped right there and, and we kind of walked up to this passage and we just looked at that, we would come away feeling like knowledge was pretty important. He talked about putting his law on their minds. He seems to put an emphasis on, on knowing him and knowledge. But then we get to verse 12. And he, and he states the why. In verse 12, he he places the why in his mercy and forgiveness. Why shall they all know you? Because he is merciful and has forgiven their sins. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. This is not a small claim. He's rooting this in Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 33. It's repeated later on in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 16. And, and he's, he's basically explaining why the new covenant is a better covenant. Let's, let's look at the passage as a whole one more time. The new covenant is markedly better than the old for several reasons. He describes it first as a covenant that stems from God's action. It is a God-centered covenant. In verse 10, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind. I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. So this is a covenant that starts with God and flows to people. And what does it do? It changes all of the relationships that they have. So the first half of verse 11, it says, And they shall no longer teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? Because the last half of verse 11, For they shall know me from the least of them to the greatest. The least of them to the greatest. So there's this connection with one another, this commonality that we all share, and we're no longer spending our effort trying to, trying to put this relationship of God in the hearts of one another because it exists there. And then finally in verse 12, he says why. It's rooted in his merciful forgiveness. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. So at this point, you're asking, what does this have to do with loving God with all of your mind? Well, I mean, it it uses the same word there in verse 10. He says that God has put his law into their minds. In Hebrews 10, 16, he says, written on their minds. The quotation from Jeremiah 31, 33 says that it's within them, which is the same idea. But what is it that he's putting within them? What is it that he's writing on their minds, that he's placing within their minds? Well, the text says, my law. But aren't we talking about the new covenant here? as opposed to the old covenant. So what's this law language? What does he mean when he says he's going to put the law in their minds? Well, I believe verse 11 and 12 are describing that. He's saying a mind that knows God's will. It's going to be a mind that knows God and has a relationship with him. It's going to exist within a community that knows God. And it all centers on and stems from the fact of his mercy and forgiveness. That is what makes the new covenant better. That's the new reality that's being placed on their mind. This is the central truth that our intellect and our emotion and our understanding and our thought, in other words, our mind, is supposed to zero in on. Now, this doesn't reduce theology to nothing. Theology is still important. This doesn't reduce Scripture to nothing. Scripture is still important. But those things serve a different role. 
Those help us work out details of how we're going to live and and how we're going to think. But we shouldn't confuse that with loving God with all of our mind. Because I believe that means something markedly different. The foundational truth that our minds need is the truth of forgiveness in Christ. And that's what we are to press our mind into first. Church, when we wrap our mind around this, we understand that our guilt is gone. We understand that our instinct for justice can be turned over to Him. We understand that our daily decisions, every one of them, are influenced by this reality. This becomes the lens through which the mind, given to Christ, sees the world. Everything filters through forgiveness. And that reframes and and tints and colors everything. It means that we're inclined to love because he first loved. It means we're inclined to forgive because you've been forgiven. It means that we desire to connect with people because he's given us a place to belong. It changes every relationship that you have. So how do we love God with all of our minds? Well, I believe the first foundational step that must occur, we must accept salvation. The unmerited, unwarranted, free, grace-filled gift of salvation that's described in Ephesians 2, 4 through 10. I'm going to read it to you. Listen closely. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, if you haven't accepted salvation, this is step one for you. There is certainly a biblical pattern that we see unfold when people want to do this. They profess their faith, they turn their heart to Christ, and they are baptized over and over again. That is what happens. I would think that there are probably people here this morning who have not accepted the gift of salvation. And I hope that you won't leave today unsaved. Loving God with all of our mind means first taking care of this foundational truth, the fact that he has set it out there for us to take. Now, there are others within the sound of my voice, maybe watching online, that have went through these motions long ago. You are saved, but you haven't really accepted it in all its glory. You feel the draw to works-based salvation. Maybe I should say this, you feel the draw to knowledge based salvation and just like the lawyer you're chasing an idea but you're missing the point the new covenant is a covenant of restored relationships and forgiveness and that means that that we have to let go and accept salvation for what it is it means that we have to breathe and let God do his thing and stop trying to do things that we cannot do. Loving God with all of your mind means fully embracing this this fundamental and glorious reality of what it looks like to live under this new and better covenant. And that glorious reality is the reality of a God who loves you and has saved you. And once we've accepted that, then we can begin to embrace it. 
When we embrace salvation, then we live life in a different fashion. We live life through a different lens. Everything that we see looks different. And so we find ourselves doing things like reading our Bibles, but we read differently. I think part of the reason we struggle with daily Bible reading is because we're looking for the things that are too easy. We're looking for the right and wrong. We're looking for the checklist. And the truth is, those are pretty fundamental, basic things that aren't hard to find. And after we've found them, then it's hard to continue to engage with Scripture because it feels boring and it feels rote. But, but those who love God with all of their mind aren't reading so that we can be right. We aren't reading just so we can learn the rules. There's a place for that, but that's easy. That's, that's milk. That's not the meat that we're looking for when we study our Bibles. When we open our Bibles as someone who has embraced salvation, we are looking for specific things. We're looking for for God. We're looking to see how he describes his love for us, how he describes his desire for us, how he describes the gifts that he's given, the extent that he's gone to love you, the plans that he has for you, the glorious future that he's prepared for you. We're spending time in the Word, seeing his love and, and pressing our mind to love him in return. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love because he first loved us. And that is oh so true as we read through the text and we see his love for us just pouring off of the pages. Folks, you are saved because... Because God loves you. And that is a foundational truth your mind needs to be pressed towards. It causes us to change the way that we talk in our daily conversations. When we embrace salvation, we can't help but talk about the hope that we have. That's what happens when we wear these uh, salvation-covered glasses. Everything looks like that, and it becomes the things that just rolls off the tip of our tongue. We often think that evangelism means that we have to sit down with someone and walk them through the book, chapter, and verse for why they should be baptized. And I certainly think that there's a place for that, but evangelism is so much more. Evangelism happens when people who are saved talk about and live with the hope that's within them. The world has changed when we live that way. When your mind is saturated with the joy of salvation in Christ, that's what drips off your tongue. And finally, it causes us to treat people with love. You know, we already talked about loving your neighbor as yourself. We did it out of order. We talked about that first. But I think it's fitting because that is the action that follows from loving God with all of our heart. And it's in response to the model that he has shown us. Colossians 3, 12 through 14 says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against one another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. We forgive as we have been forgiven, and we live in loving community while we do it, pressing our minds towards Him and everything. And finally, I think the the last mark of loving God with all of our mind means that we're always prepared to correct the false thoughts that arise. In Jeremiah 17, 9, we read, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Now, I've already mentioned that in the Old Testament, often the word for heart and mind are used interchangeably. So I think it's appropriate to use this verse here because we know that our minds are tricky. And we constantly live with our minds telling us things that are not true. I think the New Testament Christians struggle with this also. In 2 Peter 3.1, he writes, This is now the second letter that I'm writing you, beloved. In both of them... I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. In other words, this is the second time I'm reminding you. 
I think if they needed reminded, we needed reminded too. We need reminded of things that are true because our minds trick us into believing things that are false. So we struggle with things like guilt. We, we feel like we're not enough. We feel like we're guilty and we see our brokenness. But then Romans 8 one says, There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or we struggle with our pursuit of justice and we see wrongs in the world and we want to right them. We want to fix things. And Colossians 3.13 that we just read says, But you're supposed to bear with one another. If one has a complaint, forgive each other as the Lord's forgiven you. Romans 12.19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But what about shame? We struggle with shame. We look at our sin and our brokenness and the choices we make and we think, but I'm not worthy. I'm, a, I'm ashamed of, of who I am. If everyone really knew, they wouldn't want to be close to me. And Hebrews 14 says, no, no, no. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Or what about when you feel alone? Romans 8, 38 through 39 says, For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Scripture arms us with the truth that we need to direct our mind back to Him. Scripture reminds us over and over again how loved we are and how much he loves us. The truth is this, right, wrong, morality, for the most part, it's pretty clear in Scripture. I think we spend most of our time debating and developing ways of handling, handling special circumstances that truthfully do arise, but not frequently. We spend an enormous amount of time debating how to do church, namely how we worship. Uh, to be quite honest, Scripture says very little about that, so we have to be careful. In all of these things, uh, worship, uh, special circumstances that arise, the daily moral decisions that we make, we, we must make choices. We have to live, and these choices should be guided by Scripture. So yes, yes, God's Word equips us and walks with us through, through each and every one of these things. We can, we can and should use it for that. But loving Him with all of our mind is so much more than right knowledge. It's so much more than right knowledge so that we can make right choices. Loving Him with all of our mind is about, being, about seeing the truth so clearly that we understand we are covered not just when we are right. You're covered when you're wrong. The new covenant is a covenant of forgiveness through Christ. And we love God with all of our mind when we understand the truth of what that means means the foundational truth our minds need is the truth of forgiveness in christ and lives lived like that are lived with confidence and hope and security so i want to wonder just a second before we release what it would look like if collectively we all embraced this truth and then went out into the world living it what happens when a group of Christians put their hope in him? What happens when a group of Christians put their hope fully in him? What happens when every relationship from every one of us is filtered through the knowledge of our forgiveness in Jesus? 
Well, I believe that's a game changer because because when we do that, we experience freedom. John 8.32, Jesus says, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And I think this is the truth he's he's trying to zero in on. He's saying once you've experienced forgiveness, you can... You can breathe. You're okay. When everything is about God, everything looks different. Your life ambition becomes about His glory. That's loving Him with all of our soul. Your talents are used for His glory. That's loving Him with all of our strength. And your mind is pressed into this glorious reality that we've talked about today. That's loving Him with all of your mind. So we can live free. We can live unencumbered by sin and guilt and brokenness. We can live with purpose, directing our powers to change the world uh, in a meaningful way. And we can live without anxiety, um, ambitious for Him and not for worldly pleasure, comfort, or security. And I think when we do that, the world around us, the people around us will look at us perplexed. Because at the end of the day, they're going to see that we're all striving for the same things. We're all reaching for the same things, but they're grasping at them, and it's like they're, it's like they're grabbing at a, at a vapor, and every time they, they grab it, wafts away. It's like they're, like they're trying to catch sand, but, it, but it's falling between their fingers, and they're, they're reaching for it, and they're reaching for it, but no matter how much they grab, they, they never catch any. And, and that's them, and, and then they look over, and they see, we want the same thing, but what are the Christians doing? They're, they're just there confident and secure because they have what they need and we're not chasing the things of the world and we're not running after things we're living with joy and peace and contentment because we're saved we have a job we have a goal and when they see that they see a modern day miracle The age of miracles is over, but this, the life of Christians who've loved God, who stepped in and they have stepped in and taken the place of miracles. The way that we live is nothing short of miraculous, and, and I believe that is what is going to draw people to God. I believe that is the grounds that they need to provide the evidence so that their faith can be rooted in reality. They can see the truth of forgiveness in the way that you live. Our collective love for God is the big light that we ask our pew packers to shine each week. The city set on a hill that cannot be hidden. Maybe you have seen something that has made you curious, and we would love to show you where our joy comes from. We're going to heaven, and we're confident in it, and it's because of Jesus Christ we have salvation. We love God because he first loved us and he sent his son to cover our sins and he invited us all to become part of his family. And I promise you it is the best way to live. And the best thing about it is not only is it a good way to live, it's never going to stop because it's eternal. And that's what we have been brought into. So if you are living any other way, you are missing out. But you can change. You can have what we have and it's free. But proceed with caution because it will change everything but in such a beautiful way. Perhaps you've been saved and you've been focusing on the wrong things. The pursuits of your mind have been misplaced and it's caused you to shine the wrong color light in the world. Well, I'm here to tell you that sin has been covered too. Now that you see it, let's redirect so the world can see God more clear. We're in this together. We want to help you. We will pray for you, study you, support you in any way that we can. Whatever your need might be, the invitation is open. Come forward as we stand and sing.